0: The Better Samaritan Podcast, where we're learning how to love our neighbors well in a world filled with injustice and pain. Join me, Kent Annan, and Jamie Aiton, my co-host and colleague at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, as we interview experts with insight on learning to do good better.
1: This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts.
2: They who truly come to God for mercy come as beggars, not as creditors. They come for mere mercy, for sovereign grace, and not for anything that is due.
3: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they deliver. Today's sermon was preached by Jonathan Edwards. It's uncertain when he preached it, but a good guess would be definitely before 1733 in Massachusetts. Joel, we have done an episode on Jonathan Edwards
1: before, and it was the sermon that, if you've heard of him, you definitely have heard of this one, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But this sermon we're going to listen to is also a really powerful plea uh, for forgiveness from God. And the whole theme of this sermon is that there is no sin too great for God to forgive. This may seem like a really basic, maybe even an elementary thing to you if you've been a Christian for a little while, uh but i almost guarantee you it is also one of the most important things that we really need to preach from our pulpits today how many people can you think of or maybe have you known that stopped going to church uh because some secret sin maybe got a hold of them or instead of letting go of whatever was in their life they just they you know i don't think god can forgive me of this uh and then and they just stopped going to church or stopped left something interfered with their walk with god and they just couldn't feel feel that forgiveness from god
3: yeah, another Jonathan Edwards episode, and so we're, we're talking early 1700s in pre-United States, where we're still colonies at this point, right? And just to kind of paint you a picture of, you know, what what was Jonathan Edwards bringing like? What was his family like? Imagine a family of 11 siblings, all of them over six feet tall, which is not important to any any of the theological parts of this episode, but I just found that, because that's rare, especially back then. It was rare that people were six feet tall, let alone a whole family of 11. And here's what I found more interesting. Again, not theologically applicable at all. Ten of the 11 were women. He was the only boy in his family. He had ten sisters, all of them over six feet. Funny. It's not it's, important. It's not important. But it is weird. It is. It is interesting. Yeah, we're early on in American history here. We're only seventy years after the Pilgrims had first started colonizing it. So a lot at this time, a lot of people are still teachers, preachers, and farmers. Right, we're training these next generations to come up. We're farming for food to provide for our families. That we're, we're still becoming stable society for the new world. And so we see that a lot in his family. His parents are teachers, preachers, and farmers. They're doing everything to bring up their family in that way. And Jonathan Edwards also comes from a bit of a a relatively well-off family, which is uh, also kind of rare for this day and age. He has a a great uncle that was a a part of the royal lead over in the England side, and his father was a very successful uh, merchant. So they have a little bit of, of... of namesake to them they have a little bit of famous people in their family um and so he went to the best schools and had a very good education growing up
1: his dad took school very seriously uh probably due to the family's history with it it was such an important thing for the grandfather and everyone involved but uh and you know his dad was a teacher uh his dad prepared him for college a whole lot spent a lot of time coaching him and when he was 13 he would end up going off to college uh, like they did back then He went to a school that was was before Yale, and while he was there, it became Yale. And again, to give you an idea of how important Jonathan Edwards' family was, uh, one of his cousins was running the school at the time. Uh, while he is there, he has this kind of a breakthrough moment where he had always been involved in the church, and by all accounts, he was considered a religious Christian. But he said, he just said one day it just changed. Uh, Christ just felt real to him. Everything just seemed different. His walk suddenly seemed really important, and it just all, he was flooded with joy and love and this presence of divinity and power, and he just couldn't describe it. But he said, everything just changed on that day, and I don't know how to explain it, but my faith just became more real. He preached at a church in New York for like a year, uh, but his family wanted him back home in Massachusetts. Uh, He tutored at Yale for a few years. Uh, This was kind of considered a quiet time in his life where he wasn't really on the stage a prepping time, maybe. Um, And he was a former valedictorian of the college, uh, so, you know, he was a good tutor to have. Eventually, his grandfather, who was 83 at that time, called him to assist him at his church. And this was definitely a different kind of assistance than we think of. Uh, it's funny. Pastors and clergy are kind of looked down on um, in society. And, as, you know, even back then, you, maybe they would be looked down on too. Uh, the early Americans are kind of looked down on too. It's kind of dumb. Uh, you know, this is 30 years after the Salem Witch Trial, right? These kind of superstitious people. But that couldn't have been farther from the truth with Jonathan Edwards. As a assistant to the minister, He was required to spend 13 hours a day studying the Bible, books, literature, anything that they could get their hands on. He was studying that. Uh, And this went on for about three years. And this is a guy who already was a valedictorian of, you know, Yale, already very well educated. Uh, At 26 years old for Jonathan Edwards, his grandfather dies and leaves him as the sole person running one of the most influential and wealthy churches in the colonies,
3: he was married to a woman named Sarah Pierpoint, and after getting married, they would have 11 kids themselves. He came from a family with 11 children. He himself had 11 children, although there were three sons in this badge, but it's still eight daughters, which I still feel is a lot of of girls to raise. Um, revival in the colonies broke out around 1733, and his preaching was a, a big factor in that hundreds started getting saved and coming to his church to hear him speak. He preached along the Connecticut River, and so people could travel up and down the Connecticut River to get to these preaching sessions. And During this time, there were also revivals going on in Britain, and these two revivals kind of, like, there's instances where they have some crossover and they kind of work together and strengthen each other in a lot of kind of neat ways, but of the two revivals, the one in America is definitely one that seemed to to take it more to heart and was more effective long-term by it. It was one of the first kind of major things that bound the new colonies together, you know, other than you know, initially settling the land and some, you know, w- wars with the Native Americans and with the French, there wasn't a whole lot that they had unity over this time, you know, this far separated from that initial landing. So the Great Awakening was a really neat and incredible way that we see these colonies now coming together and being changed by uh, the, this Great Awakening as, as it's coming up. In 1735, though, something happens, and it kind of
1: puts a stop to the revival movement, really cools off everyone's uh, excitement. People had already been criticizing Edwards for being too fanatical, and his people just being too emotional over uh, everything, and in the summer of 1735, people became depressed. They felt literally without any hope, actually. They knew they were sinners, but they did not become converted or didn't feel like Christians. And uh, many of them, multiple groups of them began to contemplate suicide. You know, what's the point? I can't be saved. And I, I know, I know I'm hopeless. And one, maybe two of them actually did commit suicide. And we know for sure one of them uh, was Jonathan Edwards' own uh, church parishioner and his uncle. This really cooled the revival down. Uh, Puritans and others in the area were already telling Edwards, hey, you're going too far. It's too emotional. And seeing people in their lives, I mean, that just had a huge effect on everything. Uh, Things went quiet for a few years. but, But the news of the conversions had traveled around the world and had reached Scotland and England, where, again, we had talked about another revival was already taking place and one of the most famous preachers of this era george whitfield and we've done an episode on him it's called an almost christian definitely want to go check that out Uh, but george whitfield contacts uh, edwards and and they set up this kind of preaching tour for america and uh 1739 1740 when he preaches at edwards church it was said that edwards just wept the entire sermon that Whitfield was doing Um, because he was calling them to go back to revival he was saying basically don't you guys remember what was going on you need to get back to that this is you know, you may have had some hard times and obviously everything's awful, but you guys had passion and fire for God and you need to get back into that. It kind of re-inspires them and they decide, you know, we're going to go back after that again.
3: Yeah, so that leads into the Great Awakening. So, I mean, we're, we've, we've covered about a decade here from his start of, of marriage and ministry to now the Great Awakening starting here in, in 1740s, right? And He's one of the prime architects of that Great Awakening movement. I mean, it's impossible to describe how affected the church is by him and the movement that he had there today, especially for people living in America. Um, a lot of what America is now it wouldn't be that way without Jonathan Edwards and the Great Awakening movement that he was a part of. I'll, when, you know, when you look at Jonathan Edwards' life, though, it seems like there's a lot of People criticizing and directing that criticism towards Jonathan Edwards in a lot of different ways, and you know some of it, admittedly, I is per, I think is pretty valid. But um, he also does spend a lot of his time kind of refuting a lot of the criticism that people uh, direct his way. There, you know, people would often convulse during his sermons or or swoon and and kind of go all crazy. And Edwards, he wrote a book kind of refuting this and saying this this is not normal. Uh, he did not encourage it. Kind of just saying, like, D- don't associate. You know, like this is not something that I am teaching them or encouraging them to, them to do. The, okay,
1: so the second book that he writes is is basically people are kind of saying, hey, uh, Jonathan Edwards, you know, the Puritans have a long history of, you know, preaching and teaching a certain way. The, the Great Awakening is kind of changing how they're doing that. And and they're using a lot of terror. They're using a lot of hellfire. And people are saying, like, there are kids present at your sermons, John Edwards, and, you know, you can't be going so strong. And he writes this book, and one of the points he makes is he's like, look, we're improving the moral character of this country. The crime stats are going down, and this is proof that our preaching is working and people are getting saved and they mean it. Uh, It's almost like, see, people have gotten better, the police department has nothing to do anymore. That is so strange to me, it's so funny to me, like that's such an odd way of doing that. And it's really weird to me too, it's just something you wouldn't see today. But actually a sermon 100 years later that we will have on the show uh, is one by Spurgeon, and he actually, Charles Spurgeon, in London, does the same thing, and it's kind of almost a reverse. He looks at the crime stats in London, and uh, spoiler alert, he's like, hey, I know that you guys are saying you're saved, but you're not, because I can look at the crime stats, and the crime stats are way too high for all of you guys to be Christians. Weird thing, I just would love to see a pastor do that today. This episode is brought to you by the Better Samaritan podcast with hosts Ken Annan and Jamie Aiden.
0: The whole idea is we're looking at how do we do good better? The Good Samaritan helped out along the road, but then in Dr. Martin Luther King's sermon, he talked about how we want to also figure out why did the person get beat up along the road? We want to make the whole road safer. So that's the, that's where we're coming from on this podcast.
2: Far too often, we've seen Good Samaritans whose
0: hearts were in the right place, but because they weren't also helping with their smarts, they actually
2: ended up causing harm. So we really wanna bring both our, our faith and look for a biblical understanding as well as what can research and science teach us to be able to help us do this work better. Most often, it's these small acts of kindness that make the biggest differences in the lives of our neighbors. And so on the podcast, we explore those small ways to get involved, those tangible, practical, concrete ways of what it means to love our neighbors. You can find Better Samaritan anywhere you get podcasts.
1: So this whole controversy over throwing one's body into the convulsions, the test of not being saved and stuff, it, it really kind of becomes a problem for the revivals. Uh, it's interesting because... I think it's interesting because it's actually something that still goes on today. You know, we still have revival movements, and one of the things that is still talked about is, like, should people throw themselves on the ground, roll around? All these different things are actually, like, we're still talking about this today. Um, We could keep going on and on, actually. Uh, There's so much that happens in his life. Um, But we'll just kind of say, look, Edwards had a lot of problems, had a lot of fights with the churches around him and the church he himself worked in. And uh, this spiritual infighting and the ministry that was going on, I think it— It looked like it would have crushed him, but he he just seems like a pretty humble uh, guy. And there are some people who can maybe push back, but he ends up going off to kind of the frontier. He could have gone to a bunch of big churches, but he goes to this kind of frontier church, um, works there for a while, ends up preaching to a lot of Native Americans using a translator, and you know that wasn't the most common thing at the time. He was really seeing a heart that these people needed the gospel, and this would eventually lead to a book that he writes that pretty much changes missions from 1700, 1800, the, the, forever. Um, I think it's kind of ironic that the, fir- the two things he most becomes famous for is not all that studying and book reading and stuff he did as a kid. You know, it was not Yale or anything like that, but it's his preaching. And it's this missions book and his... But, you know, I think that's probably a better thing to be famous for.
3: He has a, a kind of dark end to his life. Uh, apparently, you know, most of his life, he was never a particularly healthy person. He always kind of struggled with health in different aspects of his life. But there was a moment towards the end of his life where he got called to be the head of a college. And he didn't want to do it. He refused at first, but they were very persistent. And they wanted him to come and head over this college and be a professor at it. So he goes to this college and he hands out assignments and he's just getting going and you know, it seems like actually a pretty good fit. It seems like he's got a very promising future as the head of this college. But there was this issue where some of the students, some of the kids there were refusing to take smallpox vaccines at the time. And smallpox was a devastating disease at that time that was killing lots of people and vaccines were you know, showing that they were preventing people from getting smallpox. And so to encourage the, the students to take their smallpox vaccines, he took one himself to prove that it was safe Uh, But unfortunately, he did have a reaction to it, and with his poor health already, it introduced him to a sickness that he couldn't recover from, and he passed away around that time. So, kind of a sad, depressing end for his life. So, he had a very interesting life. And again, we do have a previous John Edwards episode, as always, one of the recurring ones. If you want to know more about his history, go and listen to that one, where we dive more into his ministry as it grows... But there's no denying, when we look at his life as a whole, he has an incredible love for God, and he was a very intelligent person that had a passion and burden for spreading the gospel. Uh, Growing up in the South, I heard a lot about how hard it was to get converts there.
1: Uh, Everyone already kind of thinks they're saved, is what pastors would say, and so the question was, were they really saved? You know, really know Jesus or not? Or were they just attending church because that's what you did? I think this is what Jonathan Edwards uh, dealt with in a lot of ways in New England too. As the children and grandchildren of the Pilgrims, the whole society built around God, they moved to have, you know, their own place where they could celebrate God. This people probably had it built into them that they were Christians. But after the Salem Witch Trials, the the really a lot of that religious fervor And the young colonies had begun to die. A lot of people had moved there for, you know, work and stuff. It wasn't quite the same Christian colonies, maybe, that they once were. People were going to church, and they, you know, they were saying they were Christian, but were they really? In this sermon, Jonathan Edwards is trying to tell those people, and really all of us, yeah, you, even you, you are sinful. You need to be washed. But also, you're fully capable of being forgiven. No sin is too great for God, but you've got to recognize that need.
2: For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Psalm twenty-five, eleven. It is obvious by the passages in this psalm that when it was written, it was a time of suffering and danger for David. This appears especially true in the fifteenth and following verses. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. His distress makes him think of his sins and leads him to confess them and to cry out to God for pardon. See verse seven. Don't remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. And verse 18, look upon my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. It can be noticed in the text what arguments the psalmist makes use of in pleading for pardon. First, he pleads for pardon for God's namesake. He has no expectation of pardon for the sake of any righteousness or worthiness of his. Nothing for any good deeds he has done or any compensation he had made for his sins. Although if man's righteousness could be a just plea, David would have more reason to plead than most. But he begs that God would do it for his own namesake, for his own glory, for the glory of his own free grace, and for the honor of his own covenant faithfulness. Secondly, the psalmist pleads the greatness of his sins as an argument for mercy. He not only does not plead his own righteousness or the smallness of his sins, he not only does not say, pardon my iniquity, for I have done much good to counterbalance it, or pardon my iniquity, for it is small, and you have no great reason to be angry with me. My iniquity is not so great that you have any just cause to remember it against me. My offense is this, but you could easily overlook it. But on the contrary, he says, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. He pleads the greatness of his sin and not the smallness of it. He enforces his prayer with this thought, that his sins are very heinous. But how could he make this plea for pardon? I answer, because the greater his iniquity was, the more need he had of pardon. It is as much as if he had said, Pardon my iniquity, for it is so great that I cannot bear the punishment. My sin is so great that I am in necessity of pardon. My case will be exceedingly miserable unless you are pleased to pardon me. He makes use of the greatness of his sin to enforce his plea for pardon, as a man would make use of the greatness of calamity in begging for relief. When a beggar begs for bread, he will plead the greatness of his poverty and necessity. When a man in distress cries for pity, what more suitable plea can be urged than the extremity of his case? And God allows such a plea as this, for he is moved to mercy toward us by nothing in us but the miserableness of our case. He does not pity sinners because they are worthy, but because they need his pity. Doctrine. If we truly come to God for mercy, the greatness of our sin will be no hindrance to pardon. If it were a hindrance, David would never have used it as a plea for pardon, as we find he does in this text. The following things are needed in order that we may truly come to God for mercy. First, that we should see our misery and be sensible of our need for mercy. They who are not sensible of their misery cannot truly look to God for mercy, for it is the very notion of divine mercy that it is the goodness and grace of God to the miserable. Without misery in the object, there can be no exercise of mercy. To suppose mercy without supposing misery, or pity without calamity, is a contradiction. Therefore men cannot look upon themselves as proper objects of mercy unless they first know themselves to be miserable, and so, unless this is the case, it is impossible that they should come to God for mercy. They must be sensible that they are the children of wrath, that the law is against them, and that they are exposed to the curse of it, that the wrath of God abides on them, and that he is angry with them every day while they are under the guilt of sin. They must be sensible that it is a very dreadful thing to be the object of the wrath of God, that it is a very awful thing to have Him as their enemy, and that they cannot bear His wrath. They must be sensible that the guilt of sin makes them miserable creatures, whatever temporal enjoyments they have, that they can be no other than miserable, undone creatures so long as God is angry with them, that they are without strength and must perish in that forever, unless God helps them. They must see that their case is utterly impossible for anything that anyone else can do for them, that they hang over the pit of eternal misery, and that they will drop into it if God does not have mercy on them. Second, they must be sensible that they are not worthy that God should have mercy on them. They who truly come to God for mercy come as beggars, not as creditors. They come for mere mercy, for sovereign grace, and not for anything that is due. Therefore, they must see that their misery under which they lie is justly brought upon them, and that the wrath to which they are exposed is justly threatened against them, and that they have deserved that God should be their enemy, and should continue to be their enemy. They must be sensible that it would be just with God to do as he has threatened in his holy law. He could make them the object of his wrath and cursed to hell for all eternity. They who come to God for mercy in a right manner are not disposed to find fault with his punishment, but they come with a sense of their own utter unworthiness, as with ropes around their necks and lying in the dust at the foot of mercy. Third, they must come to God for mercy in and through Jesus Christ alone. All their hope of mercy must come from the consideration of what he is, what he has done, and what he has suffered and that there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we can be saved but that of Jesus Christ. They know that He is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. It is His blood that cleanses from all sin, and Him who is so worthy, and that all sinners who are in Him will be pardoned and accepted. It is impossible that any should come to God for mercy, and at the same time have no hope of mercy. Their coming to God for it implies that they have some hope of obtaining Otherwise, they would not think it worth the while to come. But those that come in a right manner have all their hope through Christ, or from the consideration of His redemption and the sufficiency of it. If someone comes to God for mercy, the greatness of their sins will be no hindrance to pardon. Let their sins be many and great and awful, but it will not make God the least degree more backward to pardon them. This may be made evident by the following thoughts. 1. The mercy of God is as sufficient for the pardon of the greatest sins as for the least, and that is because His mercy is infinite. That which is infinite is as much above what is great as it is above what is small. So God being infinitely great, He is as much above kings as He is above beggars. He is much above the highest angel as He is above the meanest worm. One finite measure does not come any nearer to the extent of what is infinite than another. So the mercy of God being infinite, it must be as sufficient for the pardon of all sin as it is for one. If one of the least sins is not beyond the mercy of God, so neither are the greatest, or ten thousand of them. However, it must be acknowledged that this alone does not prove the doctrine. For though the mercy of God may be as sufficient for the pardon of the great sins as others, yet there may be other obstacles besides the want of mercy." The mercy of God may be sufficient, and yet the other attributes may oppose the dispensation of mercy in these cases. Therefore, I observe, too, that the satisfaction of Christ is sufficient for the removal of the greatest guilt, as the least. First John 1.7 The blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. Acts 13.39 By him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. All the sins of those who truly come to God for mercy, whatever they are, will be satisfied, if God is true and who tells us so. And if they are satisfied, surely it is not hard to believe that God is ready to pardon them. So that Christ, having fully satisfied all sin, or having brought about a satisfaction that is sufficient for all, it is in no way inconsistent with the glory of the divine attributes to pardon the greatest sins of those who in a right manner come to him for it. God may now pardon the greatest sinners without any prejudice to the honor of His holiness. The holiness of God will not suffer Him to give the least consideration to sin, but instead inclines Him to give proper testimonies of His hatred of it. But Christ, having satisfied for sin, God can now love the sinner and give no consideration at all to sin, however great a sinner He may have been. It was a sufficient testimony of God's abhorrence of sin that He poured out His wrath on His own dear Son, when he took the guilt of it upon himself. Nothing can show God's adhorrence of sin more than this. If all mankind had already been eternally damned, it would not have been so great a testimony as to the death of Christ on the cross. God may, through Christ, pardon the greatest sinner without any prejudice to the honor of his majesty. The honor of the divine majesty indeed requires satisfaction, but the sufferings of Christ fully repair the injury. Let the contempt be ever so great Yet, if so honorable a person as Christ undertakes to be a mediator for the offender and suffer so much for it, it fully repairs the injury done to the majesty of heaven and earth. The sufferings of Christ fully satisfy justice. The justice of God as the supreme governor and judge of the world requires the punishment of sin. The supreme judge must judge the world according to a rule of justice. God does not show mercy as a judge, but as a sovereign. Therefore, his exercise of mercy as a sovereign and his justice as a judge must be made consistent with one another. And this is done by the sufferings of Christ, in which sin is punished fully, and justice answered. Romans 3.26 To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. The law is no impediment in the way of the pardon of the greatest sin. If men truly come to God for mercy, for Christ has fulfilled the law, he has borne the curse of it in his sufferings. Galatians 3.13 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 3. Christ will not refuse to save the greatest sinners, who in a right manner comes to God for mercy. For this is his work. It is his business to be a savior of sinners. It is the work upon which he came into the world, and therefore he will not object to it. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, Matthew nine thirteen, Sin is the very evil which he came into the world to remedy. Therefore, he will not object to any man that he is very sinful. The more sinful he is, the more need of Christ. The sinfulness of man was the reason of Christ coming into the world. This is the very misery from which he came to deliver men. The more they have of it, the more they need of being delivered. They that are healthy don't need a physician, but they that are sick. Matthew 9.12 The physician will not make it an objection against helping a man who cries out to him, that he stands in great need of help. If a physician of compassion comes around the sick and wounded, surely he will not refuse to heal those that stand in the most need of healing, if he is able to heal them. 4. Herein does the glory of Christ by the redemption of Christ consist. Herein its sufficiency for the pardon of the greatest of sinners. God had it on his heart from all eternity to glorify his grace. The greatness of divine grace appears very much in this that God by Christ saves the greatest offenders. The greater the guilt of any sinner, the more glorious and wonderful is the grace manifested in his pardon Romans five twenty where sin abounded grace abounds much more. The apostle, when telling how great a sinner he had been, takes notice of the abounding of grace in his pardon, of which his great guilt was the occasion. first Timothy one thirteen who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and harmful. But I obtained mercy, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant, with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. The Redeemer is glorified in that He proves sufficient to redeem those who are exceedingly sinful, and that His blood proves sufficient to wash away the greatest guilt, and that He is able to save men to the uttermost, and in that He redeems even them from the greatest misery. It is the honor of Christ to save the greatest sinners when they come to Him, as it is the honor of a physician that he cures the most desperate diseases or wounds. Therefore, no doubt, Christ will be willing to save the greatest sinners if they come to him, for he will not be backward to glorify himself and to commend the value and virtue of his own blood. Seeing he has laid out for himself to redeem sinners, he will not be unwilling to show that he is able to redeem even the uttermost. 5. Pardon is as much offered and promised to the greatest sinners as any if they will come to God for mercy. The invitations of the gospel are always in universal terms. Everyone that thirsts, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and whosoever will, let him come. And the voice of wisdom is to men in general. Proverbs 8, 4. To you, O man, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men, not to moral men or religious men, but to you, O men. So Christ promises in John six thirty seven, Him that comes to me I will in no way cast out. This is the direction of Christ to his apostles after his resurrection, Mark sixteen fifteen. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized will be saved, which is agreeable to what the apostle says, that the gospel was preached to every creature which is under heaven, Colossians one twenty three. Application. The proper use of this subject is to encourage sinners whose consciences are burdened with a sense of guilt immediately to go to God through Christ for mercy. If you go in the manner we have described, the arms of mercy are open to embrace you. You don't need to be at all fearful of coming because of your sins. Let them be ever so black. If you had as much guilt lying on each of your souls as all the wicked men in the world and all the damned souls in hell, yet if you come to God for mercy, sensible of your own vileness, and seeking pardon only through the free mercy of God in Christ, you would not need to be afraid. The greatness of your sins would be no hindrance to your pardon. Therefore, if your souls are burdened and you are in stress for fear of hell, you need not bear that burden or distress any longer." If you are but willing, you may freely come to unload yourselves and cast all your burdens on Christ and rest in him. But here I'll speak to some objections which some awakened sinners may be ready to make against what I now exhort them to. First, some may be ready to object, I've spent my youth and all the best of my life in sin, and I'm afraid that God will not accept me when I offer him only my old age. To this I would answer, 1. Has God said anywhere that he will not accept old sinners who come to him? God has often made offers and promises in universal terms. And is there any such exception put in? Does Christ say, All that thirst, let them come to me and drink, except old sinners? Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, except old sinners, and I will give you rest. Him that comes to me I will in no way cast out, if he is just not an old sinner. Did you ever read such exceptions anywhere in the Bible? And why should you give way to exceptions which you make out of your own heads, or rather which the devil puts in your heads? and which have no foundation in the word of God. Indeed, it is more rare that old sinners are willing to come than others, but if they do come, they are as readily accepted as any other. 2. When God accepts young persons, it is not for the sake of service which they are like to do to Him afterwards, or because youth is better worth accepting than old age. You seem entirely to mistake the matter in thinking that God will not accept you because you are old, as though He readily accepted persons in their youth because their youth is better worth His acceptance, whereas it is only for the sake of Jesus Christ that God is willing to accept any of you. You say your life is almost spent, and you are afraid that the best time for serving God is past, and that therefore God will not now accept you, as if it were for the sake of service which persons are to do for Him, after they are converted, that He accepts them. But a self-righteous spirit is at the bottom of such objections. Men cannot get away from the notion that it is for some good or service of their own, either done or expected to be done, that God accepts persons and receives them into favor. Indeed, they who deny God their youth, the best part of their lives, and spend it in the service of Satan, dreadfully sin and provoke God. And he very often leads them to hardness of heart when they are old. But if they are willing to accept Christ when old, he is ready to receive them as any other's. For in that matter, God has respect only to Christ and His worthiness. Second, but, says one, I fear I've committed sins that are particularly evil. I've sinned against light and strong convictions of conscience. I've sinned arrogantly and have so resisted the strivings of the Spirit of God that I'm afraid I've committed such sins as none of God's elect ever commit. I cannot think that God will ever let one whom He intends to save to go on and commit sins against so much light and conviction and with such horrid arrogance... Others may say, I have had risings of heart against God, blasphemous thoughts, a spiteful and malicious spirit, and have abused mercy in the strivings of the Spirit, trampled upon the Savior, and my sins are such as are special to those who are deserving of eternal damnation. To this I would answer, 1. There is no sin peculiar to the lost, but the sin against the Holy Ghost. Do you read any other in the Word of God? And if you do not read any there... What ground do you have to think any such thing? What other rules have we by which to judge of such matters but the divine word? If we venture to go beyond that, we will be miserably in the dark. When we pretend to go further in our determinations than the word of God, it is Satan who takes us up and leads us. It seems to you that such sins are special to the lost and are as such that God never forgives. But what reason can you give for it if you have no word of God to reveal it? It is because you cannot see how the mercy of God is sufficient to pardon or the blood of Christ to cleanse you from such powerful sins? If so, it is because you have not seen how great the mercy of God is. You never saw the sufficiency of the blood of Christ, and you know not how far the virtue of it extends. Some elect persons have been guilty of all manner of sins except the sin against the Holy Ghost. And unless you have been guilty of this, you have not been guilty of any that are special to the lost men may be less likely to believe because of sins which they have committed, but are not the less readily pardoned when they do believe. It must be acknowledged that some sinners are in more danger of hell than others. Although all are in great danger, some are less likely to be saved. Some are less likely ever to be converted and to come to Christ. But all who do come to Him are alike readily accepted, and there is as much encouragement for one man to come to Christ as another. Such sins, as you mention are indeed exceedingly heinous and provoking to God. And do in an especial manner bring the soul into danger of damnation, and into danger of being given to final hardness of heart. And God more commonly gives men up to the judgment of final hardness for such sins than for others. Yet they are not peculiar to the lost. There is but one sin that is so, and that is against the Holy Ghost. And not ignoring the sins which you have committed, if you can find in your hearts to come to Christ and close with Him, You will be accepted not at all the less readily because you have committed such sins, though God does more rarely cause such sorts of sinners to come to Christ than others. But it is not because of His mercy or the redemption of Christ is not as sufficient for them as others, but because in wisdom He sees fit to dispense His grace as a restraint upon the wickedness of men. And because it is His will to give converting grace in the use of means, among which is this one, which is to lead a moral and religious life and agreeable to our light and the convictions of our consciences. But when any sinner is willing to come to Christ, mercy is as ready for him as for any. There is no consideration at all for his sins. Let him have been ever so sinful. His sins are not remembered. God does not bring them up with him. Third, but shouldn't I stay away until I've made myself better before I presume to come to Christ? I have been and see myself to be very wicked now, but am in hopes of mending myself and rendering myself at least not so wicked, then I will have more courage to come to God for mercy. In answer to this, 1. Consider how unreasonably you act. You are striving to set up yourselves for your own saviors. You are striving to get something of your own, on the account of which you may be more readily accepted, so that by this it appears that you do not seek to be accepted only on Christ's account. And isn't this to rob Christ of glory, of being your only Savior? Yet this is the way in which you are hoping to make Christ willing to save you. 2. You can never come to Christ at all unless you first see that He will not accept of you any more readily for anything that you can do. You must first see that it is utterly in vain for you to try to make yourselves better on any such account. You must see that you can never make yourselves more worthy or less unworthy by anything you can perform. Three, if you truly come to Christ, you must see that there is enough in Him for your pardon, though you are no better than you are. If you see not the sufficiency of Christ to pardon you, without any righteousness of your own to recommend you, you will never come so as to be accepted of Him. The way to be accepted is to come, not on any such encouragement that now you have made yourself better, or more worthy, or not so unworthy, but on the mere encouragement of Christ's worthiness and God's mercy. 4. If you ever truly come to Christ, you must come to Him to make you better. You must come as a patient comes to his physician, with his diseases and wounds to be cured. Spread all your wickedness before Him, and do not plead your goodness, but plead your badness and the necessity on that account. And say, as the psalmist in this text, Not pardon my iniquity, for it is not so great as it was, but pardon my iniquity, for it is great.
1: I love the ending of the sermon, you know, he starts with the verse, unpacks it, talks about it, gives some application, objections, whatever, but then he he brings you right back to that verse, I think he does an excellent job, he's a great preacher, and I, I just, this idea that we need to spread our, you know, sins before God, just trust him, be honest, confess who you really are to God, and you know, don't don't play with this, I think it's very important that we, we take it seriously, that we don't just assume that oh you know god will forgive me or anything like that no he's like you have sins you may have some really big sins there's nothing too great for god but just that emphasis on you have to acknowledge it you have to be real about it you have to know that sin is really bad and then give it to god and trust that he has really made you clean and new and that there is no sin too great for him it's such a basic gospel premise but i think jonathan edwards does a great job of it and sometimes i i find in my life that some of the most basic things are the things that i need to get reminded of over and over again
3: thank you for listening to today's episode of revive thoughts special thanks to derek brown for narrating today's episode Derek was originally from Montana, but he received his undergraduate degree from the Master's University and his MDiv and PhD from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He serves as an associate pastor and elder at his church, Creekside Bible Church in Cupertino, California, and is an academic dean at the Cornerstone Bible College and Seminary in Vallejo, California. He lives with his wife and three children in San Jose.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. If you enjoyed it and you thinking, I need a little more Revive Thoughts, or just want to say thank you for a good show, I think what what you guys are trying to do is good and it, it maybe is necessary, consider uh, joining us on Patreon. $3 a month, uh, a little bit less than a cup of coffee these days. You'll get the Revive Thoughts bookmark. I am holding them in my hand right now. They are ready, and we're, we're sending them out. Uh, This week, Joel and I, so we're very excited that we can finally get those out to you guys. Also, a history episode that we will do that is... Uh, it's, it's, a lot of people enjoy the history portions of Revive Thoughts. If you enjoy that, I think you will really enjoy these history episodes we're doing. We're doing a very deep dive from a Christian perspective on the Salem Witch Trials. I have learned so much from this, and I think you guys will learn a ton. And just $3 will get you into that episode, allow you to listen to it when it's up, which will be, I mean, very, very soon. It's 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 ready. We just got to put the recording time into it and uh, also there will be other things special you know background stuff on the show between joel and i things that we would love to tell you but it doesn't fit into the revive thoughts kind of episode so we have to kind of share that for another time there's a lot of stuff that will be coming down the pipe too that we are excited to do so join us on patreon uh, if you want to help our show help us get microphones and things like that it helps a lot and we would really uh, love to see you over there this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts
0: The Better Samaritan Podcast, where we're learning how to love our neighbors well in a world filled with injustice and pain. Join me, Kent Annan, and Jamie Aiton, my co-host and colleague at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, as we interview experts with insight on learning to do good better.